Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? get him out of the house and like men are slow and I just it's just a, yeah. it's a really no win situation um no so wins. anyway yeah. hello 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 uh, you, you've hello. been busy I've been busy we've all been busy we have been doing the damn thing haven't we yeah uh yeah I <laughs> I have spent the last what feels like a week yeah I think it's been a week Simply reviewing every single dollar. Oh we've my spent gosh! Twenty twenty one, like literally, and putting it in a spreadsheet. Literally, like like Dunkin' Donuts, oh four dollars and sixty four cents. Well, can you can because you can write off a <laughs> lot of machine. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's the point of it. Um, is to find everything that that can be written off, but it's you know, and I'm hunched and my back and my neck hurts and I have eye strain and it's just like, oh my God, Calgon, take me away. Yeah. I mean, I think that taxes are um, one of those things where if you do them right and legally, it's a lot of work, right? Like if you want to skim and be shady, which I don't recommend because guess what? The IRS's only job is to get your money. Like that's their only job. They don't have any other purpose on the planet. So like, if you think that's not their job, you're wrong. Um, But anyway, so if you do it right, like you are, it's a lot of freaking work. And it also is painstaking. It is. And I, and, and it's painstaking. And I think, you know, to, to, to find an, a silver lining in it. Like, I'm so glad I don't have a full-time job because this is the kind of thing that literally, I don't know how people, when it's, when everybody works, how they do it. It's, it's, well, you it's can't, just, I mean, I think it's, that's why people end up in trouble. Like that's why people end yeah. up trying to scam, scam or not doing them and being like, you know what? I'm going to pass on all this. I'm just going to hopefully. Yeah. And like, that's yeah. what I did with my student loans. Um, because I didn't want to, and that's not even as hard as taxes, but I just like couldn't cope with the ins and outs of doing the work to defer or like make deals or like get my payments lower. Yes. And thus I yeah. had a sheriff show up at my apartment. Like that is where you're headed. You don't know that story. Oh no. <laughs> All right. So no. I thought it would be really cool to not pay my student loans. I, I mean, I didn't really have the money, but I also didn't realize that my student loans were private student loans. Oh boy. So when they're private, you're in big trouble because guess what? It's a bank that wants their money. It's not the government who has a million other things to do, right? So the bank is like, no, we want our money. And I did not know that the bank hires the sheriff's department to serve papers when you are being sued for your private loans. So one day I am in, on, in Rogers Park at my thinking, you know, nothing of it. Like I, I owed 50 grand and I to like four different banks, right? It's always, and they sell them to other people and it's a big scam, right? Okay, fine. But I'm like going about my business thinking, but feeling bad, but like feeling like, ah, 
fuck it. Like, who cares? Well, they care. Wait, how long were you not paying them for? A couple of years, maybe. I just, a yeah, of I just years. said, forget it. In 15, 2015, I said no more. And then in 2017, <laughs> 2017, I literally, I, I kept getting calls. They started calling Miles and I was just like, yeah, just pay no attention, Miles. Like, pay no attention. And of course, he's like so trusting. He was like, okay. <laughs> I'll pay no attention. I'll compartmentalize. And, oh, um, okay. So God. one day there's a, our buzzer goes off and I'm like, hello. <laughs> uh, Cause no one ever, he's like, this is the sheriff's department. Are you Jennifer Bosworth? And I was like, and then I realized I really quickly, your mind goes, Oh, what have I done wrong? Right. And it focuses in on the thing. Cause you know what you've done. wrong. I know what I've done wrong. And I'm like, Oh my, here is the, the piper or the pied piper or whoever is coming to collect chickens home to roost all the things and i was like and i just said i have a lawyer go away (laughs) and he goes no we just we just want to give you these papers like we have to give you these papers i'm like no i have a lawyer go away which is the wrong thing to do um wait also what was your logic there i have a lawyer okay there was no logic Gina. Uh, I would say it was the opposite of logic is what's going on. So I say that they go away because, and so they're paid by the bank. So they just hire the sheriff's department to serve people. I did not know this. Like they, they, you're, they're for hire, basically the sheriff's department. Yeah. So they go and they serve people and they could not serve me. But then what it did was it was really actually a great kick in the pants because I was like, oh, I have a court date now. So, no, I didn't. So what I did was I said, okay, let me find. So then I was like, I need a lawyer. So, uh, and then on my 43rd birthday or 42nd, 42nd birthday. Yeah. 42nd birthday. I went to the lawyer. I found this lawyer. Fucking brilliant. I can't remember her name right now. She was like legally blonde. She had these long pink nails and her only job was to get people off student loans and, and either file bankruptcy or figure out a way to talk the loan people down. She was a badass. And I went there and I was like crying and I was like, look, and she was like, Oh, $50,000. That's nothing. And I was like, Oh, she's like, I got people that owe, you know, 600,000 in medical school loans. Blah, 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 oh, blah, blah, blah. yes. Medical school. That's yeah. oh. and all, all the, but also she goes, yeah, the private loans, they get you, you know? So, um, so she, she, um, okay. So she said, I said, well, what do I do? I can't remember her name. She was so awesome. And I, and she's like, well, do you have the money? I'm like, well, look, I have this inheritance. She's like, oh, no, 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 no. Then we can't declare bankruptcy because they'll go after your inheritance. I was like, oh, hell to the no. So she's like, all right, well, we'll try to get them down. So she reduced $50,000 to $25,000 for a fee of $3,000 and um, went to court and was like, you know, so she talked them down. She's like, you're getting nothing if you don't take this $25,000. She's like, can you get me $25,000? I'm like, sure. So I then um it happened to be we were selling the house around that time anyway i got the money and then my life has but my credit was literally okay here's what people don't understand it's like it it may be stupid but the credit matters be if you want to live somewhere (laughs) yeah right like if you want to be on the grid if you want to like have a house that is if you ever want to apply for apartment if you ever want to it matters. I, I I know it shouldn't. I always tell my students like, yeah, all this shit shouldn't matter, 
But it does, everyone. It does. I hate the fact that it does. But let's be honest about the truth here. Let's just get real. So my my credit now, what my credit was so low. I can't remember what it was. And I was like, oh, that's not so bad. And my friend was like, that's like the worst credit you can have. And I was like, oh, okay. I was like, well, I didn't understand the scale, right? Like, I was like, oh, 540 isn't bad or five, oh, like something. Yeah. She was like, that's like bad. the worst. And I was like, oh. So now my credit is 780. Oh, no, no. 750. Yay, I got it yay. back. All of it is 750 because I paid it off. And like, I don't, we don't have any debt. Thank God, credit card wise, because Miles is, if, if it were up to me, I'd probably have debt up to my eyeballs, unfortunately. But my partner is like, oh, no, no, no. He's good so with that. Oh, I love he's that. really good with that. Thank God. Oh, boy. Because I have some problems because my parents never taught me shit. You know, whatever. Right. So, oh, so. All this to say, how did this come up? Because we were talking about taxes. Taxes, sorry. And, and, okay, but so many things about your story. First of all, it was $50,000 just the amount you owed from the time that you stopped paying? Or are you saying you had a total of $50,000? I had a total of, no, I had more than that. So I had had 80 and I had paid 30 of it off because I went to school like in 08, I graduated. So it's not like. Right. It's a long time. So um, I had 80000 total. I had paid thirty somehow, some way in all those years around there. And then I had fifty left. Yeah. And okay. yeah, I refused to pay the 50 And But then I owned it. Just, just asking, but like, could anybody go to a lawyer and say, reduce my... Yeah, that's their whole... Because here's what they... Yes, this is what they don't tell you. Is that... <laughs> I feel like such an asshole right now. Oh, you do? Hold on. Dor- Doris is literally overdosing on melatonin. Hold on. Okay. Doris. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe you oh, could, I, I could have. I just pay all of my so students. This will never happen again. Come here, Doris. Yeah, don't, don't worry about son it. son of a bitch. Come here. Drop the melatonin. Drop the melatonin. <laughs> I, I just can't believe I've paid every penny of my student loans. What is wrong with me? I'm the worst partner ever. Sorry. No, you are not. You are okay. not the worst partner. Just grabbing her. <laughs> she hates me and I hate no. her. It's mutual. Okay. <laughs> right. I took the thing away from her. And I gave her all kinds of food. Okay. So yeah, you don't okay. feel like an asshole because here's the thing. They never tell you this, that you can, everything's negotiable in this country. Okay. Every single thing is negotiable. Everything's a business deal. Everything can be reduced. Why? Because it, there's no set rate for anything. That's capitalism. So you 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 could charge whatever you want, and then it's negotiable. So what she told me was, these companies, these banks, they're banks. They're not companies. I mean, you know, they're banks. These banks know that they will get nothing if someone declares bankruptcy, okay? So they don't know that I had this inheritance, this, you know. But they, they know that most people say, F you. I'm part of capitalism is bankruptcy. I'm declaring bankruptcy. You'll get zero dollars. So they want anything. They'll take pennies on the goddamn dollar. So she's like, oh no. And it's a fine line. And that's why you need a lawyer to go to court and say, my client has nothing. So if you want anything, she lucked into 25 grand. She can, she can scrape by 25 grand. You want that or you want jack shit. And then they'll say, give me the 25 grand. Right. Right. Well, I, 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 it doesn't matter now. If I had done this, you know, 10 years ago, I mean, because the thing is, of course, like you take, you borrow $50,000 and you pay 300 um, basically. It's ridiculous, especially with private yeah. loans. 
ridiculous. Yeah, that's what, and that's what I had. I had a lot of pregnant women. But the other thing that's so striking about your stories, I, I, the moment when you start, when you said you had this moment in 2015 where you said, fuck yeah. it, I just, that yeah. gave me such a thrill. Like, a, you know, <laughs> the idea that you would just, because I, the reason I couldn't do that is I would think about it every second of well, the day. Well, I would have. I would not be Because able to. my mom was my co-signer, but that lady was dead. So I was like, what are they going to do? Because she was really, right. I was more afraid of my mother than the federal, than the, than the bank and the government. So the private loans and the government. So I, if she was alive, you bet your ass, I would have been paying those motherfuckers off. One of my loans for social work school, uh, had to have a co-signer of, um, my father-in-law. And for some reason that I never did get to the bottom of Wells Fargo, if I was one day late for a payment, they wouldn't even call me or contact me in any way. They just immediately Your would father. call him. <gasps> yes. <gasps> and what? he he would, of course, call me the second that they called him. And it was so yes. embarrassing every time I'd be like, I mean, it happened like, I want to say it happened five or I six mean, times. I mean, that, that is so easy to do. It's so, but it's so obnoxious. You know, it's also like this is the mafia. Like, right, you, right. You're you're one day late in your payment, and you you don't say, "Hey, could you pay me?" You just go. You just threaten oh, somebody to break that's their a legs. That's yeah, it's a psychological like. tactic. It's like some real Scientology bullshit. Oh, that's horrible, horrible, horrible. So, if you have a, if you can't pay your student loans, if you're listening to this and you cannot pay your student loans, call a lawyer. Hey. Let me run this by you. And, I, and then I'm also doing another another way in which I'm uh, an obsessive rule follower is that Google sent me a message saying, I have exceeded my storage limit by 380%. And if I, <laughs> listen, anybody can, anybody can bully me. I am so easily bullied. It said, if you don't, if you don't pay more for storage or get rid of some of what you have, you will no longer be able to send or receive emails. So I spent five hours yesterday going Which through. It's probably emails. not a bad idea in some. It's not a bad idea. Well, I got it down. To, sorry, I was I was I was using three hundred and eighty five percent. I'm down to three hundred and forty percent after deleting probably ten thousand emails. But like, is it true what they're saying? I, I don't know. All I know <laughs> is that when I log on to my email and I see a big red line across the top. Yeah, I've I had just, that I, too. I've had that I too. I can't, I can't take it. I can't take the red line. So, but upside, it has been a lockdown memory lane, you know, because really? it's just things, I mean, p- people I'm having email exchanges with that seem sort of intimate. I'm like, I have no idea who that person is. Or like reading an email. I looked for the oldest email I have from you, which on this, on this, um, uh, my Gmail is from 2008. And just, you know, whatever, like you were talking about your job my and jobs. I was talking about my yeah. job and was, I found the, the engagement announcement. Yeah. 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 yeah so it's yeah, kind yeah. of fun. And and also, I realized I had thousands of emails that I just simply don't need. Like, I keep every email. Do you keep all of your emails? No. So I 
I'm so weird. I never have more than zero unread in my inbox. But wait, do, but that just means you means... archive them at all. No, I just delete them. You don't. Not all the good ones. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm terrible in that I don't know how to do shit. So I don't f- put them in folders or anything like that. Or archive. You don't? And then you have, no, my and life you have is... zero emails? Yeah, it's because I have no life, maybe. And I just oh, like constantly oh, check them. Moon Frere, you have a full life, and now you don't have any of your emails back from you don't you. No, I have them. Oh, well, how do you have them? I erase the ones as they come in that are no that I don't no longer oh. that have attachments and no longer need. Okay. So I manage my box. So here's the thing. I will run out of storage. It's just that I don't think I get a lot of emails. I, I don't. I actually don't. Like, I'm always saying I want more emails. I'm like the only person that wants. A, I'm so weird. Like, I love paperwork and I love emails. And so I don't know. I'm always like, no one ever emails me. It's so weird. But anyway, the point is. It's not possible that no one ever emails you. Well, it's right possible now, that like, you wanna... did the thing that I did, which is I accidentally deleted all of my emails from the year. No, I remember that. That was hilarious. But, and not so wait, hilarious. so for example. So right now I have zero emails. But new unread, unread. Oh, zero unread. unread. You keep everything in your inbox. Yeah. You know me. <laughs> That's like my my desktop. So how many emails are in your inbox? Unread? No, just 30,000. I mean, red, 30,000, 30,000. 30, <laughs> okay. Wow. Well, what do you do when you well, need to find something? Well, that's why I can't ever find my link. <laughs> why you don't say, why I haven't, you have, I, so every time you send me, it's bad. But Miles, okay, <gasps> Miles was like, because now Miles is really into email because of his job for the last six months, his new job. And he's like, but you have no full. I have zero have folders. No, zero folders. Like, I, I, my, the shoulder, my shoulders are getting so tense hearing this. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, beans. Like I, I'm not saying I have a good system. Like I don't have a good system. I have no system. But what it is is I'm just proud. I don't have like I'm really judgy about people that have a lot of unread emails. So like literally, if I walk by co-working and I see someone's inbox has like twelve thousand unread, I go, oh god. Yeah. And they right. go, what? I go, oh nothing, nothing, nothing. Little do they know, I have not one fucking folder, so I can't. Okay, you it. and I need to star in a production of The Odd Couple because yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I know. I look at your, I, I don't even know how you make, I look at our joint email. I don't know what these folders mean. I don't know what, there's like subfolders. I'm like, ah, it's, it's, it's like science to me. I'm like, eh. Although now that you're, now that we're discussing this, I'm realizing another fake fakery. Um, folders oh. actually don't have any meaning because actually, Hi. well, because actually if you wanted to find an email this is like from severance. Tar- right. If you want to find an email from Target, you can just Google. I mean, you can just search in your. Yes. But the problem is if you have 4,000, let me run this by you emails. Oh, right. So that is my, so I need to set it up. I thought I had set it up for, for my, let me run this links, 
No. So what I did was set up a ma- a new Gmail account. Okay. Like, and it's okay. not good. It's okay. not good. So I. So the bottom line is, I don't think my system is great. But what I think is, I like, I like. Well, I'm weird in that I like having no unread emails. Okay. But at the same time, I don't feel like people are emailing me enough. If we did a Freaky Friday, you and me, and you were thrust into my life, and I was thrust into. Oh my your god. Life, I think that I would immediately feel relieved because I feel like you don't necessarily carry around you I mean you have a lot of stuff that you have to carry around but you don't necessarily carry around this need to do everything perfectly no no and I think that comes I swear to god a lot of it is with kids because if you fuck up with yourself okay so you're a fuck up but if you are a parent of three children and you don't, you fuck up, you end up like a lot of people we know, which is, and the kids end up like, like we, us and the people we know, we don't like that. So that is, I feel like if I was dropped into, so, so I feel like if I was dropped into your life, I would like it. Cause you have like all this space. Yeah. I would start yeah, rolling yeah. around in every room. <laughs> and my kids would love it because you're fun. And that's, that's like, that's like the dynamic that's the thing in our house is like mom's no fun mom's doing she's got the rules she's no no i'd be like all right let's do let's eat fried food this would be my thing i'd be like we're just gonna eat fried food and i i can't eat that anymore but if i dropped into your life i could right i could eat that um and i would say okay this is what i used to eat before my heart like went kablooey i would have i was thinking about the other day something called uh a chicken nugget bowl okay which was i would a bowl of chicken uh, nuggets mixed with okay so i'd go to trader joe's and get the the chicken nuggets and then um bake those and then their their potatoes fries fries um and but and literally dump a bunch of that in a bowl put some ketchup and mix it all up and just have like a chicken nugget fry bowl Uh, that's not good for you by the way (laughs) Why was it appealing to put it in a bowl instead just of on a like, plate? Just like I liked the combo of the two together, and like the ketchup was the, the glue that held it all together, oh and gosh. I loved that. But the problem was, I gained a lot of weight, and then my heart went down. Yeah, so I can't, you can't really maintain. Right, no. What's the thing about adulthood? The shit you really like cannot be maintained if you want to live. I mean, it's such a bummer. Also, such a bummer. I, re- I recently realized that. Um, youth really only lasts for 25 years yeah you are correct so 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 everybody is mostly old right like everybody spends the majority of their life old that didn't occur to me for some reason i think because we're so youth obsessed in this culture it i had this way of not logically but like i had this way of thinking about it like it's this long epoch of life but really you're old for a very long time and then you die you're and, and then you're also very young for a period of time so the the period of time where you're autonomous and <laughs> it's like adult, five years it's five it's five oh, years we missed it people. we also missed it which is we sad. missed it and then we were just walking around feeling horrible about ourselves that is such a so waste right good. Um, the other thing I was going to tell you, I have a really good story to tell you about someone we know that I can share because it's a good story. This is a story about why it's good that life can be good. Okay. I'm teaching at DePaul, our alma mater, as you know, if you listen to the show. Okay. I teach fourth year BFA actors on 
Zoom, which I wasn't supposed to, but I got special dispensation and that's a whole nother Oprah in itself. But so I have students and one of my things is we write pitch letters I help them because that's my jam. I love doing that. Even if it's a pitch letter for them, for to a, produ- to a rep, to a producer, whatever. We write these like bio pitch letters. Okay, fine. So I have this student. Um, I still have the student. And he's an, a wonderful youngster. And he's like talking his dream. This is so crazy. His dream is to be in the, the Mar- somehow in the Marvel universe. Okay. Like he wants, his dream is to be in a movie, a Marvel movie, but of course he wants a foot in the door or anything. And he goes, and I said, okay, well like why? And we're developing his pitch letter with the class. Everyone takes turns and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I would really like the career of this guy that I, that I've heard about named Sean Gunn. I'm like, wait. Oh my so God. He, he said, he said, I know he went to the theater school and like, And I go, and I'm thinking to myself, because, you know, obviously we've interviewed Sean Gunn, listened to his interview, and obviously, and we've done it twice, right? No. Didn't we do? Yeah, two, two parts. I wasn't that the second one, but yeah. And obviously we know him and obviously he's not like my best friend, but I, and I was like thinking to myself, and he's like, I just would really love to pitch him. And I was like, oh my God. So we created a dope letter to Sean Gunn and I wrote to Sean and said, Hey, my students are doing this thing. He would love to jump on a zoom and they're going to have a zoom. So he's going to meet his hero. Yes. That's amazing. I know. I, I, I couldn't have been happier. I was like, I actually am doing something that makes a difference. So I'm facilitating the zoom between Alex and Sean and Sean was gracious enough to do it. And, and it turns <sighs> out that he's filming, I think in Atlanta, you know, probably some Marvel thing. Yeah. Right. And, and um, he gets off this week. And so it's, he has some time and Alex is like flipping out. Alex 21, right. This kid, he's like yeah, a great right. kid. He did stop motion classes. Like he, uh, like how, he knows how to do oh. that as an actor. Like the guy is in oh, his letter. Cool. I really helped him with his letter. And, and, and Sean said this, your student's letter is so sweet. Like, I love it. So anyway, the point is I was like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is also to say that another reason the podcast is good, right? Because you just don't know how you're going to like pass it along. And FYI in two months, my students are going to be our colleagues, right? Cause they're graduating. So you don't know, like, I don't know what they'll need from me or what I need from them. I always say you're the person who identified from the very beginning that this podcast was going to be healing to people. And not only are you doing it in this way, but you're also doing it in the way that you're through your work as a teacher, correcting the thing that almost everybody who comes on says, I, yeah, I got all this education, but then when I graduated, I didn't know right. how to do anything. Right. Like you're giving them at least. I do one-on-ones with them. And because I'm like, look, yes, exactly. What happened to us and happened to everyone that we've talked to almost, except for like three people. And we've talked to a lot of people happened to is happening again, because I think there's obviously a bigger question of the reckoning of how do we change a theater stage Um, acting conservatory to become more friendly towards launching these students in a way where they actually can get work and live and not worry and not worry as much that everything is for naught. And what am I doing? And I didn't get picked or chosen and how to write a pitch letter. Like FYI, all the people that I'm helping write pitch letters, they're all getting their meetings with people. It just, anyway, you were saying, 
Like you can access. Yeah. People it's, I'm not suggesting like that anybody you want to talk to, you can just hit them up and talk to them. But I am just sort of speaking to this barrier that I have always had myself, this mental barrier of like, well, I could never talk to so-and-so it's this thing about like, I could never follow my dream. You know, I recently realized that I actually was afraid to say inside of my own head what a dream yeah what my dream was like right like I I just made 99% of life completely out of reach for me and then just try and then just try to figure out what this one percent that I could that's you know what I could pick from yeah I mean that's what trauma does to you I mean like that's what it does it Mm. says you are you can't even it's not safe to even dream in your own fantasy. So most, what I'm finding is, is the more I talk to people and the more I d- sort of do research for like my own writing on trauma and like serial killers really, but like that the trauma is so crystallized at a young age, right? That there, it cuts off all access to hope. That's the effect mm-hmm. of trauma. Yeah. There is no hope. Right, right. So you operate in this one teeny little place of, I'm not going to hope, but I'm still going to live because I'm not going to die. So there's, it's like, it's like, um, yeah, you mm. can't, you, mm. you, yeah, there's mm-hmm. no hope. Trauma, trauma cuts off the access to pipeline, to hope and to not just joy, but hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if it's true, like we were saying that youth is the, this short window, the good on the, the good side is there is hope in your older years that you can evolve to be the person that you You really can. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of, um, it's not easy and it's like really bizarre how you get there. But if you keep putting in the work and get support, it is possible even at 46. Like that's the other thing that I am so clear on because I launched this consulting business. So crazy. Like I thought I was going to get a nine to five and like, so my consulting business has taken off. Right. Because you know, it's just fantastic. And and people are like, how are you having so many clients? This is the reason. I have no imposter syndrome when it comes to this particular skill. Like I'm scared as shit to be an actor. I'm scared as shit to write, to be a writer. I'm still doing it, but I'm scared in that way. A screenwriter, a television writer, that kind of thing. But if you ask me to sit down with somebody and help them to pitch themselves and to crystallize their vision of what their thing is, whatever their thing is. I don't care what it is. I have zero imposter syndrome. I know you don't have to hire me. I don't, that's, you know, but I know that I am good at that beyond a shadow of a doubt because things have all come together to show me that. So my own work emotionally Um, working with you on this podcast and in the entertainment business and my past life in entertainment and getting a master's in counseling psych literally has prepared me to do this thing. And I have no like fear that um, if I'm talking to somebody about it, that they're going to think I'm full of shit because it's actually the truth of what it's undeniable. Like it's undeniable. And it's because I put in the work and also I just, it's one of the side effects of being, a traumatized and neglected child is, is, and then doing the work to work through that is noticing that in other people and where their trauma points are. So now like I'm literally about to start pitching my services to, um, the district attorney's office for, um, (laughs) 
for trials for people to do closing lawyers that are scared to do closing arguments in a theatrical way isn't that crazy oh that's i got it i got it watching i was watching the john wayne gacy trial and i was like oh this guy has an amazing closing in his his closing argument the the da was so brilliant and it's known as like he did this beautiful theatrical but also tasteful thing because sometimes it can be like a carnival but like and so I was like, oh, how do I help people do that? Because that's, you know, and that's always tricky in the legal system, but I've also worked in the legal system. So I know a little bit. So anyway, yeah. that's my new, I'm like, yeah, these, some of these lawyers, how exciting. Oh, a lot of lawyers have like um, stage fright. So litigators even, and they need help. So anyway, wow. we shall see where that goes. That's but so cool. I don't have, I don't have, I'm not afraid. That doesn't, I don't have imposter syndrome about that. Yeah. Oh, thank God. We, we should all have at least one thing that we don't feel like we're an imposter about. Yeah. One thing? I mean, for God's sake. Today on the podcast, we are talking to TJ Harris. TJ Harris introduced us to the idea of the artistpreneur. And his background in business is what helped him get to that exciting place. So please enjoy our conversation with TJ Harris. Congratulations, TJ Harris. You survived theater school. <laughs> Yay! And you did it with some very, like, your um, energy just from the emails and from your life is, like, so positive, ridiculously positive, which I adore. Thank you. And which I think we need. And also, um, you call yourself, and you are, an actorpreneur. Uh, artistpreneur, yeah. Oh, artistpreneur. Artist artistpreneur, yeah. sorry. Brilliant 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 mixing of that thank you like i love that did you come up with that or, or yeah well i think so i probably stole it from somebody else you know as all artists do <laughs> um yeah but i have a i have a i started in business uh before acting so i came to lading to, to acting and filmmaking later in life uh, i'm 34 right now and this i've been on this journey for about six years um, so I, I kind of started out like in finance, I studied, I got a general studies degree in undergrad. I went to Ball State University in Indiana and I, uh, was a business administration major at first and I hated it. <laughs> Absolutely hated it. Um, but I knew it was during the time, like right before the recession hit where it was like, just get a degree to get a job. So I was like, okay, I'll get a business degree. Um, but I ended up switching over to general studies with the concentration in finance and sociology. Um, and during that time, I, I, I've always felt like I've been kind of in this, this middle ground of not really knowing which route I wanted to go because I didn't want to become a doctor and I didn't want to become a lawyer and I didn't want to go down this, like somebody already created my path for me. So I just kind of started experimenting with things, um, Graduated with my degree, got a job with a company that I'm currently still with. I work part time for them. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm a, I'm a consultant part time. Uh, oh, you know what's so funny? That is so rare that people keep their job after they graduate from a from a fine arts like from a conservatory yeah. that they as a master's student. That is fantastic. And why did you keep it? Like, do you love that work? What makes you want to keep it? No. So, I mean, they know I don't really love it. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I actually quit. I quit prior to coming to going to TTS for grad school. So the plan was just to uh, just to be done with it because I really want to transition out of this industry, but it keeps pulling me back somehow. So I quit. And then I had an exit interview uh, and someone that when I first started with the team, the per- one of my colleagues ended up being the manager of the team when I was leaving. So did an exit interview and I was like, hey, if you all like, I'll come back and help out while I'm in school if you all need my help. So six months later, they brought me back as a contractor. <laughs> so I was working and like had basically all my bills were paid for through working this job part-time while being at TTS. Here, here's the thing. This is brilliant for a lot of reasons, but one of which, you know, I teach BFA fours at the theater school um, and, and now they have a class and I don't know, you may have had something to do with it. I don't know that that's called um, actors as, as entrepreneurs. There's like a, but, but it reminds me of like, they're trying to, but you already did that on your own. So like you, I never, um, it is so brilliant that you were able to maintain that job so that you, my guess is you were able to live, like you had some dough to live on, right? Yeah. Versus. I didn't oh. take out any additional student loans or anything like that. I, I did just the bare minimum and I was living with a friend from undergrad. So my rent was like. How much did he charge me? He charged me like six hundred or seven hundred dollars to be in a really nice place. I didn't have to pay utilities, um, and I was living with a friend that I knew. So, and it, it was a it was um, so the reason I quit is because I, I asked to go remote <laughs> from my previous manager, but they didn't really work that out for me, so I quit. And I was like, you know what? I don't I don't need it. So they brought me back, and it was like it was a part time remote, and I already knew the job, <laughs> and I was. I was basically like, so like in the middle of rehearsal on breaks, I was doing work. It's all project-based work. I was doing work in between rehearsals, um, in between classes, I would check in and check my emails and just kind of set my own hours. And so like when the pandemic hit, I was already in the work from home mindset. I I have to stop you for one second because there's so many things that you're saying I want to respond to. One is it's always a, a good sign, a good omen when just organically the conversation turns to exactly what she and I were talking about before we started talking to you. We were talking about student loans and what a albatross they are for so many people. So that you did yourself such a favor by, you know, not having to go down that path. Um, But also what I, what we always find in the MFAs is they really already know how to hustle, right? Because they've already been in the workforce hustling is like the thing you have to be as an actor. And I feel like that isn't writ large enough when you're in a training program. Like, listen, you can learn about intention till the cows come home, but what you really have to be able to do is figure out how to do a lot of things all the time. Right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's and so the other, true. Yeah. Go ahead. Good. Ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I was, I was already hustling. I was working a full-time job and then, immediately going to rehearsal for four hours and then rehearsing on my own after rehearsal and then going back to a job the next day. Well, so this leads me to a question that maybe you can answer, which is, okay, so the MFA, what I'm noticing, because I also am doing a little workshop with some of the MFA actors this year Mm -hmm. and a writing workshop because they're really interested in writing. The ones or twos? 
or threes. Um, I don't, it's all weird now. Yeah, no, it's all weird. No, these are twos. Okay. And, um, and anyway, what I'm learning is that maybe, and you can see what you think about this. Maybe we need to look at restructuring acting conservatories to be more like MFA programs versus BFAs because like yourself, we, we have found that the MFA actors who graduate seem way more prepared to live the life of an, of a, a, an artistpreneur versus the BFAs who are like, I don't know, I'm, they'd seem like they're in, like losing it, right? So what is your thought on that MFA versus BFA for you? So it's a catch-22 because obviously like I wanted my MFA experience um, and the BFAs, you know, we worked together, we rehearsed together and we did shows together and we were offered a lot of the same classes, but also you want that distinction of like, I'm paying more to get this specialized um area and i don't know if when i was 18 or 22 if i would have been in that mindset like i don't know what i wanted <laughs> then yeah, yeah. so i think it might have been i think it's a lot to process studying acting and the business of acting and to make it all make sense unless you already have an area that you're interested in and you can like apply while you're in, in school from the business side. Did, did your career in business set that intention for you to be an, an artistpreneur from before you ever started the program, before you ever started your MFA? For sure. Yeah. I, so I can, I consider getting my MBA and I was looking at like Northwestern or, and just to preface, I had really had no interest in getting my master's. <laughs> DePaul was the only school that I applied for um, because I can, I was considering moving to Chicago or LA and I just wanted the training because I didn't study theater and, and, and undergrad. So um, I, I just wanted the training and I was like, you know what? I grew up in, I, I'm from Northwest Indiana. I'm from Gary. And I knew, I knew of DePaul and I basically, really i searched top 25 mfa programs <laughs> and it was like oh this is in, in chicago and then i looked at like uc san diego because that would get me close to la so i applied to depaul and um going into it i told myself that i was never going to get my master's unless it was for something that i absolutely loved like absolutely without a doubt so it was acting and i knew that I knew that I didn't want to get out of school and be poor. Cause like, I don't, I don't like the concept of being a struggling poor artist. Thank you. I don't. Thank you for saying that. That I really appreciate that yeah. because that persists as a myth that we all need to be living in a garret somewhere. But how did you audition when you never studied that? Or did you ever act? I was, before? I was acting. Um, I was doing like community theater and I had an agent. I was doing improv. I was doing commercials and auditioning for TV and film um, and doing a lot of auditioning for, for theater and taking like workshops and classes. I had a vocal coach. So I was training, but it was like a self-study type of training. And I never really had the core foundation of what acting is all at once. Um, so I don't, 
honestly, it's just one of those things where I like I'm I'm very much uh, spiritual and like you put out, you get back what you put out into the universe. And like this life, the life that I've been kind of creating for myself is very surreal because things just like on paper, things should not happen the way that they're happening. Oh, tell us about that. Okay. So what, first of all, my question, my, my, uh, feeling is good, good for you because I think you're making it, it sounds like it's exciting things are happening and they're coming together for you. So I guess, uh, my first question would be is what is the most exciting thing that is happening for you right this second? This second, well, I just established my production company, um, my film production company in December and, I haven't launched like technically to the public, right? Until next month. Like I have an official launch day, May 15th next year, next, next month. Wow. Next month. And the most exciting things that are happening are like, I have a, a small business client lined up for uh, Mark doing marketing work. I have someone that approached me for producing a web series that we're kind of developing the scripts. And then last night, uh, a DePaul, uh, School of Cinematic Arts student approached me to produce their MFA thesis, which is going to be a SAG, a SAG agreement. So we just locked that in and that'll be, uh, and I, I can't talk about it too much right now, but um, that's, we're shooting that in August. Congratulations. So, yes, congratulations. Yeah. So even all of those things are just kind of happening and I haven't even really hit Launched. the ground. Yeah. Official. yeah. Oh my God. You're, you're going to skyrocket. So um what ways, if any, did the theater school experience challenge what you already knew about acting from having been a professional actor before the program? In a lot of ways, it actually made me, it kind of it hurt me a lot because I was very naive going into it and I was a lot more free and a bigger risk taker. And then when I got into TTS, you know, you start peeling back all of those layers about yourself and you're getting constant criticism and people are telling you to experiment, but also you, it's not, you can't really experiment because you're getting graded and you're supposed to be taking risks and shows, but you're also getting a rehearsal and performance grade. So it, call, it caused a lot of like internal conflict. Where well, why does that happen? Is that just the nature of school? I, I'm really curious as to what... So- we have a beginner's mindset, right? Which is right. a beautiful thing. A lot of us, when we go in, some of us, some of, you know, some of your classmates could like some of ours probably have been acting since they were like one month old, but for most of us, we didn't know what the hell was going. I didn't anyway, yeah. really was going on. Yeah. So what is it when you say it's, cause you said it's, it was kind of bad, which I totally can relate to yeah. the idea of then going from being more free to being more self-conscious and maybe like precious more about the work, but like, what happened? What is the process that makes that happen, TJ? Like, I don't get it. I think I think a lot of it is self-induced of like being in the competitive environment. And I, can't, I come from a sports background and wanting to um, just like love competition in a healthy manner. So I think a lot of it is that. And then I think a lot of it is just taking – when you're when you're told that there's so many different things that you need to change about yourself to kind of start fresh, it can get it can eat away at you. And like 
And in the midst of like you're learning all you're like exposing yourself to all of this childhood trauma that you didn't even know existed and your body is going through all of these changes and you're releasing all of this, these emotions that you didn't know existed. The reflection was great, but I think it was also like so much in such a little time to where before I was just kind of like, fuck it. Like, I don't have anything to lose. Like, I've never acted. Um, I'm going to do this my way regardless of what they think. And I think in grad school, I got back into a mindset of like, oh, no, I actually care what they think. (laughs) Well, the other thing that is um, because I am a uh, I I was listening to the thing you said about the sports mentality or a sports background, like, okay, like I was really good at basketball unbeknownst to me in eighth grade. Okay. Like shockingly, I was like this overweight kid, but I was really good at basketball. Okay. I didn't know I was good. I just, someone was like, Hey, try out for the team. We need people. I was like, well, I'm doing nothing else. But anyway, I turned out to be really good and I had fun because I had no expectations. I was like, okay, well they want me to play. Someone wants me. And it turns out I was really good. But then when I tried out for the high school team and it was like serious business, of course I never made the team. And I never even went back to tryouts after day one because I was like, oh, I'm not, this is, I'm not, uh, now it's serious business. Now this is like where where the big boys and girls really play and it's compet- more competitive and it's more like, it's felt more business-like, you know, instead of fun. So maybe that has, I don't know, I could really relate to that sports analogy of like, when you're free, you're going to play better. You're going to be a better athlete, right? Because you can, so it's like how to maintain that freedom as an artist, if we bring it back to the theater school, like how to maintain that freedom to do what you want to do and experiment and at the same time, take what they're giving you, but not care what they think. It doesn't seem possible to me. It, it doesn't. And I think like mid grad school, so probably second year before quarantine and everything happened, I think that was the year where I was like, okay, this is my second year. I know that I know that I, I like, I really want to set myself up for success beyond just acting. Um, but also I know that the stakes are high, like, or, or I made them high for myself. Like, Oh, I got I have to get an agent. And then you see all of that. You see it, all of your classmates, like they're starting to get representation early before graduation in the middle of the pandemic. So like, all it's like, all of this pressure and you don't know how the industry is going to be when you get out. And also like, I think I got back into the mindset of which I started in of like, okay, I feel behind already because I started acting at the age of 28 and I didn't study. I haven't been studying since I was the age of five. Like I grew up in a um, performing arts family, but I was not um, other than just doing improv and having fun and making sketches with friends. So, like, I didn't have anyone around me as a mentor in my friend group or in my family that could just kind of guide me. So I got this sense of urgency when I first started, like, okay, I have to learn everything possible. So I didn't care then, but, like, when I was in grad school, I just started caring (laughs) more about what my life could be and what it wouldn't be if I didn't get what I wanted. And I think I just, 
Interesting. That's a lot of pressure. So did you enjoy your time there sometimes? Some, like, did you, what would you say if someone came to you, like we're coming to you and say, like, what was your takeaway from that theater school experience in terms of high points and low points? I, you know, I, I, I loved it. Despite, like the first year, I will say the first year was brutal. It was brutal. My, my cohort, I love my cohort. Um, we went through like a, a Title IX uh, investigation the first quarter. So it was like emotionally draining. Just the, you know, being in a new environment and conservatory to start. And then you have like a sexual harassment case happening that creates like our own type of social distancing thing where the person can't be in class. Uh, we have what? to go through like we're getting like, Wait, this, a st- with a teacher or, student no, this or was both? a student. This was a cohort member who's no longer okay. with the program. They got expelled. Okay. But okay. So, yeah, we're going through that and we're navigating like intimacy and like how to get around all of this in our first quarter at DePaul. So a lot happened and it drew us together a lot. <laughs> um I'll say, my God. I mean, that normally happens anyway, just because of the intimacy of being in voice and speech classes, but having that to go through, I mean, that, that probably in the end, sorry for whoever got hurt in that experience, but probably in the end boded well for everybody just being able to, to gel. It did. It did. Um, So yeah, that first year was rough. I also went through, like, I went through a racial profiling scenario in the theater school that ended up leaking out to media when the George Floyd um, things happened in 2020, like that. What? It's it's a whole thing. I was, there's, uh, you were you all in the, you weren't in the new building. So how familiar with the new building? We're old as, we are old as hell. Yeah. We, we, we graduated in 97 and 98. So no. So I, so I, I was like napping before rehearsal. Um, on the second floor, which is next to like the marketing um, section, and there's like a couch, kind of blocked off. But um, you know, everyone sleeps in theater school because you spend like ninety eight percent of your time there. Uh, and there was a there was an on a duty officer patrolling, and I think he was new because he had never I had never seen him before. Anyway, so he he like woke me up. And then started questioning me and like asking why I was there and who I was and uh, asking for my ID. And I'm like, no, I, I go to school here. And then I was like, why, why did you why did you wake me up? And then he told me that because uh, someone saw on camera and called. To check that there was someone in the building that shouldn't be there. OK, so we went through this whole process of like investigating and there's no cameras in the theater school. So he lied about why he stopped me. It was, it was, you know, I'm an older, like, I'm not the typical theater type look. Um, anyway, the case got thrown out because they couldn't, like, they couldn't find enough evidence to prove that he was in the wrong, even though he did wrong. So that kind of went by. So that's, this is all first year. So the case got. Oh my God, TJ, it's a miracle you've graduated. Yeah. So the case got closed and then um, we just kind of let it go. But after that first year, I was like, you know what? This was emotional turmoil. And I refused to have the final two years go this way. So that's when I really started focusing on okay, 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to get through school and like get every ounce of it out that I can. And that, and that's kind of like this, that's when I kind of started developing, like truly developing my production company. It had been in the works for a while, but that's when I really got serious about it. Uh, and then the pandemic hit and like, I had a lot of extra free, free time and you know, my God, I, I, I don't think there, there could have been any more calamity that you were facing at this time. And you, and you, so you truly survived theater school yeah. in, on such a deeper level than I think I, I could, I can attest to. Yes. I wanted to go back to something you were saying earlier. You, when you were talking about picking careers, you were saying, I didn't want to be a doctor and I didn't want to be a lawyer. And so my assumption was that that's what your parents are. And then you said that it's a performing arts family. Yeah. So tell us more, more about your performing arts family. Yeah. So my mom, she trained in classical singing and she's not a professional singer. Uh, my sister was in a performing arts high school and she's 10 years older than I am. So I, I grew up exposed to like, I grew up exposed to her in a girl group and around artists and um, around theater. Like my mom was kind of a, she's a public speaker and, a politician in her own way because I lived in Arkansas for about five years um, during my childhood and it was a small town and everyone knew her and she she ran this uh, this preschool but she also did a lot of things in the community where she would have like women's support groups and she would go do like these leadership workshops um, and she's I also grew up in um, a Baptist church and in the black church so I I grew up seeing performances a lot and a lot of theatrical performances and seeing my mom speak. And she's so like articulate and powerful. And I always admired her like, wow, she can get up in front of all these people and speak and like enjoy it. And I could not because I was super shy, like super shy. And I think it's because people told me that I was shy. Um, So I had no interest in performing because I was just terrified of it. Um, and and I, have to, I have to pause there yeah. for a psychological moment. Um, isn't that interesting? I did not realize that about shy kids that a lot of times they're told, oh, this is the shy one, just like, oh, this is the, you know, whatever one. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling thing. Yeah. Like, oh, this is my, shy, this TJ, he, he's the shy kid. Yeah. And maybe you wouldn't have been so shy if it hadn't been reinforced and reinforced. That's so interesting. It was, it's just like what we tell ourselves, like, Oh, I can't do that. I can't play basketball. I can't, blah, blah. I'm this one. My sister's that one. That's so interesting to me. Cause shy you, I mean, just shows how people change and yeah. how we aren't really what people say we are. Yeah. So anyway, no, I, yeah. I internalized it. And what I've psychologically, I think what it was, I grew up around, kids there were way older than me and way more mature. So I'm a five-year-old around a 15-year-old and my brother who was six years older, 11, and all of my cousins are like 11, 12. I'm not going to be able to articulate the way that they're articulating and expressing themselves. But so I think I just kind of withdrew within myself when I wasn't able to do what they were doing, which ties back into um, me never acting is because I never thought it was a possibility because I saw them being able to do these things. But I didn't feel like I could express myself that way. So I just um, did sports. <laughs> okay. Well, and actually, that's kind of a pretty good bridge, really. If you feel like if you were any bit in your shell, sports does help 
people come sort of come into who they are a little bit. Um, but what I wanted to ask you was, did you, when did you, when did you figure out that you are not shy? And when did you decide that this could be something that you would do? I think in my, probably, you know, I never, I've always known that I, I wasn't shy. It just depended on who I was around, you know, what, what group I was around. Because if you like, if you're around my childhood friends and people I went to high school with, they'll be like, he is not fucking shy. <laughs> like what? He's the worst. Actually, he's the worst. Once you get him going. Um, I think it has a lot to do with code switching and being in environments I was very observant as a kid, you know, because I was shy and I listened a lot. So I think it was more of, I like to observe people around me before I speak. So I knew I wasn't shy, but I, I also knew that I wanted to be able to have a voice and figure out what that looked like. And that was kind of the journey of me that led me to acting is okay i want to be able to speak and express myself and i want the tools to be able to do it uh, i just don't know what that looks like can you tell us about some of your favorite theater school experiences like performances or or classes favorite okay phyllis griffin is a favorite of all um she, oh. I could talk about her for days. Uh, Phyllis is a voice, was our uh, my voice teacher in my second year. Um, and just her spiritual and gentle approach and having a Black woman as a faculty member was huge. Um, those, are, so those are some of my biggest highlights. So it's probably going to be more on like me and who I had around me. So... Just for context, I was the only black male in the MFA program when I went in. So there were two black women in my cohort. And then the class, the MFA twos ahead of me, there was one black woman. And then the threes, there was one black woman. So I was the only like, not only was I the, I was the only black male in the MFA program in my thirties going into uh, an environment where like, everyone out uh, the other younger black men were 18 19 20 so there was like this huge gap where i didn't really i never felt like i had someone that i could talk to you know um so but great experiences our lady of Kibeho, second year it was majority all black cast um a play centered around three rwandan girls who saw uh saw our uh the virgin mother mary uh saw apparitions of it so that was great to be in that environment and do that and then i did this really cool um in the the big black box in the healy i did this this horror comedy genre, uh, play called neighborhood three requisition of doom and i got to play three different characters and i love the horror genre so it was cool to really dive into that and, and work with the cast. And then that final quarter of the second year, the pandemic hit. And 
one of our professors that we didn't know, which was great. We were terrified because we hadn't worked with him. Um, but he's an alumni, Sean Paris. I don't know if you're aware of Sean Paris. I know Sean. Sean Sean has become a big brother to me. He is so amazing. And that was like the point that was game changing for me because it was during it was during the start of the pandemic where I had not only a black faculty member teaching, but also a black male faculty member teaching me. And I that like that was when I really felt like I was able to open up and truly start tra- translating who I am into acting and into my art or my art. Oh, so necessary. What what did uh, what was Sean teaching or was he directing? He, both? So it was all remote. He was oh, teaching right. us Meisner and um, viewpoints, but we were translating it to on camera because everything was done. So I got to really start building my relationship with the camera, how to use spatial relationship and the environment uh, because there's not really on camera for at the theater school and there needs to be more. Oh, we know. Yeah. Um, And I love TV and film is the route that I'm, I want to go for mainly in my career. So what, um, when you say like that really opened you up and that really, what do you think it, I guess what I'm trying to, I want to get clear about like, what did it do for you as a performer to have that experience with Sean? Like what, what, what happened? What changed in you? I got to hear his experiences and see him work because he really, he wasn't, he was a student as well. And he, like, we got to watch him do monologues and watch him work. And I think just being in the environment where someone was like me, literally, who was like me and has experienced experienced the type of things that I've experienced in life. It's one of those things where, like, growing up, I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me on TV or in, in film. So I never thought it was a possibility. And sh- working with Sean and being around him really opened up what acting can look like for me. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I'm never not surprised in all of the ways that representation matters. I never thought about it mattering in the classroom, but... It, it, it certainly does. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to, we interviewed Justin Ross and he talked about Our Lady of Cubejo. Mm-hmm. And he, one of the things that he was talking about was that, that produ- it sounds to me, so I'm asking you for clarification. It sounds to me like that production fostered a whole pivot in terms of the curriculum and and and, and how he said it to us is, we warmed up differently than was sort of the the, the usual at the theater school mm-hmm. and that that production helped create a new normal for that. Is that, was that your experience too? It did. And I think a lot of that has to do with our graduating class, both BFA and MFA. My class, my, my cohort was very much of like, we'll burn this institution down if we need to, like we're, we're changing shit, like regardless. And a lot of it had to do with going through what we went through that first quarter with the title nine situation. It was like, we had each other's backs and it was the same way with our lady of Kibeho of like, we have each other's backs because we went through some shit in there too, with like 
crew. Yeah, they. Yeah, it didn't. It was like there was a lot of um, sh- bad, shady shit that went down. Right, there's that, a lot of people... shit going down. Yeah, um, and a lot of like unbiased prejudice and racism that was happening with the the people who were working on crew not really having an understanding of the story that we were telling and not really allowing us to tell the story and not really getting our feedback. It was, you know, it was, it was a lot of like an all black black cast, but being essentially produced by all white people was, you know, and there was a lot of conflict during that production. Um, but I do, do think, you get, do you, do you feel like it changed though? Yeah. You were going to oh, say it, it changed the culture of TTS for sure, because we start, it was, I think that production and the things that happened during it really started shifting the culture of theater in TTS before the culture started shifting in 2020. It was kind of like the, the catalyst before that. Oh my God. Yeah. Only like 50 years too, you know, not too late, but 50 years late. Like we've had a lot of conversations because your experience um, of being the only black male in, in our generation there, yeah, there was always in any class, only one person of color, pretty much. I mean, maybe in a couple of years there, there were two and certainly Phyllis was our only, our ever professor of color. Mm-hmm. Is she still the only professor of color? I mean, I know the new dean mm-hmm. is a woman of color. Yeah, the only the only tenure. Tenured yes. and full time, even maybe. Yep. I mm-hmm. don't know. Like adjuncts, yes, we're because I'm adjunct, and and I know in my cohort of adjuncts there are, but I think full time, like mm-hmm. it's still. What? What? Wait! Wait! What? Yep. Well, Chris Anthony, Chris Anthony is new. She came in our second year. So that she's also really great. She's from, uh, she came from California and she's, she has a lot of uh, background in activism and in, in yes. classical. So she, she is a full-time staff member, faculty member, faculty member. Do you remember your audition and can you tell us about what your audition was like? Yeah. <laughs> so get this. So when I applied for the audition, they were like, you can do the preliminary video or you can just come to in-person. And I didn't have any experience with self tapes. And like, I was still raw. I was like, I don't want to put a monologue on video. Like I won't have a chance at all all if I do this. Um, But during that time, I was already preparing for Kentucky Shakespeare auditions. So I'd been working monologues um, and and working on a lot of different things with my, my vocal coach. So, um, I did in-person auditions and it's very funny because I was currently in rehearsals for the show, A Chorus Line, uh, the musical. Uh, and then I think auditions were on Wednesday, Wednesday. Yeah. Auditions were on Wednesday in Chicago. Um, and then there was an audition for Cal UC San Diego in Chicago, like they were, you know, all of the colleges, they come and I was like, okay, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get an audition for UC San Diego. And it happened to be the day before the DePaul auditions. Uh, so I knew that I wasn't going to go to UC San Diego just because I felt like they don't know who I am. It would be like me applying to Yale and they don't, they have no idea who I am. So I have no chance. So I used that (laughs) as like a warm up 
for DePaul. Used it for a warm up to get just kind of get the jitters out and audition. And then as I was leaving the uh, I can't we were in some hotel downtown, maybe the Hyatt or something like that. As I was leaving, they were like, hey, we're doing uh, auditions for Columbia in New York. If you have a headshot and resume and want to get a slot, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I have these printed out. So I signed up for a slot and then I went and auditioned for Columbia. So it was like, oh, all right. I got these two auditions under my belt. I feel I feel ready going into tomorrow right wait can i just say how brilliant it is that you decided to use them as practice yeah. like, this is the sign of someone who is ready to do their craft when they see not those opportunities as a chance to have a panic attack and die but as a chance to use their skills and practice and get in front of people and practice that is a true artist entrepreneur mindset like yeah. that is a better mindset thank gosh you had that anyway okay so then you went to columbia did you do all those i did, you the, did columbia yep i did the columbia and you know they repeat i was in the lobby just kind of hanging out with people and you hear like the people singing and they're singing the like and i'm like oh god there's there is that folks they think they had a great audition but whatever so i went in and did it i don't remember what happened um it was kind of a blur but the next day, I had never been on campus, by the way. I had never seen DePaul's campus. I had never seen the building. Um, I step on the corner of Racine and Fullerton, and I see the building. And I'm staying with a friend from undergrad who lives in Lincoln Park. And so I, I walked there. So it was like, oh, I already feel like I'm at home because, you know, I'm walking to campus. I walk there. I step on campus, and I see the building. I'm like, holy shit. This is state-of-the-art like this is amazing i open the doors and i walk in and then i knew i was like yep this is home i'm getting in all right i'm gonna get in i'm gonna get in um <laughs> the audition happens it's <clears throat> it was like a three-hour in-person audition where we did some improv in a cohort we did uh we did movement work with patrice i don't know if you all know patrice or, yeah okay we did movement work with patrice um, we did our interview. I interviewed with Dexter and Patrice on camera, and then I did my monologue. Um, what monologues did you do? I don't even remember. I did a monologue from from the Humana Play Festival. Um, I, I I did one of those, and then I did um, I did uh, a monologue from Othello. Classical, uh, and I still like. That was, I still didn't even know what the fuck a contrasting monologue was then. Like, I had no idea. Um, but Dexter going into it, Dexter Bullard, who's the head of the uh, MFA program, was like, before everyone started, he's like, you know, most people's monologues aren't going to be good. So it's fine <laughs> to everyone. So he was like, just, just do it. It's fine. We've seen thousands and thousands of monologues. They're probably not going to be good. So that took a lot of pressure off. Um. And I think what really got me in was during the interview, Dexter was like, so why, why do you want to come to grad school? You're working a full-time job. Uh, and I was like, you know what? I just can't see myself doing anything else. And I'm willing to leave my job now and kind of start over and do it. And he ended up being my advisor later. And he told me, he was like, that that was like one of the most pulling like you're talented and i knew that you would you would be a great actor but the thing was you 
I just felt it when you said that you were willing to drop everything and like completely shift your life at this stage. So that's beautiful and and um, so telling in terms of what also um, I've been talking about with Gina and other people, which is when there is an authenticity in someone's bones, in their marrow, that what they are saying, they are 100% not only telling the truth, because you can tell the truth and still sort of code it or be weird about it, but like when you are just like so there and present, I feel like it is an undeniable thing in a room that people feel and they don't have to like you. They don't have to know you, but they feel this undeniable truth is in the room. And it's sort of like, you can't go against that. Like you can't say no to that. I I can't. And most people can't. So that is, and it's, is that all on tape? I'd love to see the tape. I'm like all about like, show me the tapes. (laughs) They, they, I'm sure they have it because the, uh, they had to show the other, um, the, the team. So for review, so I'm sure they, that would be cool to see everything. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be cool to go? We, we wish we were always saying, we wish anything we did from that time was on tape. It would be cool to go back and see. When you, you change, when like, you're, uh, and also when you're mega famous, they'll show it. You know I mean? <laughs> in about, in about, in about, I would say six months, they'll be showing that yeah. TJ Harris tape to the world. So I'm going to ask you a question that I wouldn't have been able to answer um, a few years out of school, but um, I think you will be able to, which is what is your type? Like, how do you understand yourself as, you know, what you're bringing to the table as an actor? Mm-hmm. Um, that you may or may not have known before you started the theater school. Hopefully you learned it while you were there. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the, the powerful, kind hearted, gentle politician slash authority, authoritative figure. Like uh, there's a running joke whenever I was going into the office at my, my current uh, corporate job of like, there he goes again, shaking hands and kissing babies. Cause like, I, 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 I have the approach of like, I like to greet people and like meet with people. And like, before the work starts, I just like to say hi and how's your day going and like get to know them and actually hear what's going on in their lives. Uh, and I think I adopted that from my mom, but I, yeah, I'm the, I'm the athletic coach who really wants his players to succeed. Uh, I'm the, I'm the motivational speaker. Who's not like Tony Robbins because I'm not like rah, 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 fuck you do this shit, blah, blah, blah. But also I'm, I'm, I'm the, but if you, if you fuck me over, there's there's going to be some hell to pay. Like there's kind of like a, a power behind my peace and silence. But also when I use my voice, I feel like I'm very powerful. By the way, all that came across in your headshots that you put on Instagram. You you beautifully you. broadcast all of that. So I think you know that 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 was a good session. It worked and out. Go ahead. Bobby. It worked out. I love that, and I also think that you are in an extremely um, amazing position to be a producer. Like I feel like that's what we need in. That's Hollywood. her dog, by the way. That's, that's oh, sorry. Dog. That's my dog. I, 
Sorry. She's <laughs> so annoying. Uh, that's Doris. Mine's in the next room somewhere. Okay. Well, yours is behaved. Uh, so, um, yeah. And it, 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 we need producers like you in Hollywood. So come over here. Your plan is to come out here and next do it summer. properly so that, so that you can hire me. I'll and that's what I would say. My partner okay, and I, good. my partner. So, uh, so I'm by, I'm by, so here's another thing. This is also another element to me, which I think makes me unique because I am bisexual and I'm currently, I am, well, not currently, I am in a relationship of, in this a long-term relationship. It's moving towards long-term uh, with a man, but I'm more masculine presenting. So <laughs> there's a, there's a, I still type-wise broadcast as a masculine straight man but also I have the experience of dating men and women and being more vulnerable and having that like gentle side to me, which plays a lot into who I am as a person. Um, but yeah, me and my partner, were moving out to LA next year. And the plan is to, cause my production company is based in Chicago to have a buy a place here and then move out to LA and move back and forth between LA. Cause I just got an agent in Chicago a few weeks ago. Uh, and I have an agent in Kentucky. Thank you. Agent in Kentucky and Ohio. So um, just having, trying to add as many people to my team as possible. Wait, why Kentucky? You're not from Kentucky, are you? That's where I was before. So I was in Louisville, Kentucky before I moved to Chicago. Oh, okay. yep. Yep. Where are you right now? I am in Chicago. I'm in Uptown. In Chicago. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, what about your showcase experience? What was that like? Oh, <laughs> Didn't really have one um, because of the pandemic. We didn't get to go to New York or L.A., which is something I really wanted to do. More so L.A. because I, I really want to I really want to be out there. But we did get to film them um, and they brought in a production company and we filmed scenes. But it was it was it was the first time rehe rehearsing in person because we we were in masks. We had to rehearse in masks. And then we also had to shoot in masks. One person always had to be shooting. So what they did was when we were, we shot it in the, uh, the Watts Theater, the main theater at, uh, at TTS. And they used two cameras <laughs> in the wide view shot. They basically had us uh, six feet apart where one person was always wearing a mask. And then they edited together our maskless takes. So it looked like we were in the same scene together. And no one would know that we did that, but it was still eerie because it was still like this, we're here doing this work, but we're not type of thing. Um, but it was the first like in-person experience I'd had really for acting. Wow. Do they still do the, there's the main stage and then there's the workshop. Do they still do performances in the classrooms yep. or does everybody? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. They have the, the three main still the Merle Ruskin, which is downtown for the children's theater. And then the, the main stage, uh, proscenium, the Watts, and then the, the Healy black box. Are the main so, so don't be in the building. Do. In the building. Yeah. They there's two main stages in the building. And, then, and, and they only do children's shows at the Ruskin. Yep. Yeah. And Gina, and I, yeah, that's smart. Yeah. It's smart. And also the thing that is amazing about the theater school. So when we knew theater school, TJ, when we were there, obviously it was on Kenmore. And when she says classrooms, we literally did them in classrooms that looked like from 1940. <laughs> what they have now as classrooms are Black basically boxes. 
black boxes, a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. It is the most, I went there for a rehearsal and I was for some project I was in and I was like, this is like Star Trek. Yeah. We are in Star Trek. So good. Yeah. Because you pay a lot of money. People pay a lot of money. Get the big, do it, do it up, man. Yeah. Every, every room there's like, there's the entry level black box that has lighting and sound. And then it just gets more and more complex as you move into different rooms. That is so cool. Yeah. And I'm not bitter at all that I paid <laughs> for that and didn't get to experience it. <laughs> okay. So you've got this production company and did you say you're making a film right now? I, yeah, I am joining the, I've joined the team to produce uh, a short film and I am in the beginnings of writing a script for a horror feature. Oh, so cool. Can you tell us anything about I don't know much about it. (laughs) Uh, Other than I do know that uh, I want the cast to be majority black and I want to cast DePaul MFAs as the as the leads and main supporting cast so that's i'm kind of starting from there and writing from that i love that you're taking you're taking a position of power from the beginning which is not something everybody feels equipped to do but is really where you need to get eventually anyway so you might as well start that way um who are some of your horror um heroes horror heroes um jordan peele by far right now um I love the aesthetics of Hitchcock. Not necessarily Hitchcock is the person, <laughs> um, but I, I, I do think a lot of my work is going to be influenced by Hitchcock. And then a lot of like black horror films like Tales from the Crypt and um, the original Candyman is something that always sticks in my mind. It's the only horror movie that absolutely still tears, terrifies me as an adult, the original. What did you think of the remake? I thought it I thought it was I thought it was okay. I thought it was good. I thought there could have been more horror um and I love seeing Chicago people in the cast and I love just being here while this was sh- shooting and um debut was amazing. But it was also hard to compare to the original. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Since you mentioned Jordan Peele, who's one of my favorites, too, I just had this image that they could redo us in the theater school <laughs> setting, right? There's right. There's this sort of a similar duality. Well, that would be a really interesting thing to explore. That, that would be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, theater school doppelgangers? <laughs> I mean... But that's but that's what people have anyway, right? They have their because my experience at school was I didn't know and I didn't want necessarily to be in film and TV, and so we did these three years because it was we did undergrad. It was three years of theater, 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 and then the fourth year, everybody started talking about like getting an agent, and and I felt like. I was just the only one who didn't get the memo, mm-hmm. but I saw all of my classmates who had acted like they all just wanted to do theater too, completely turn into different people. That's something that happens in the last year of school that I don't know, like, I don't know that necessarily we need to be having a conversation about it, but just, it's just interesting to me. It's like everybody allows themselves to relax and learn and soak it all in. And then in the last year, it's like, 
yeah, but I've got to be famous and I've got to do it right now. Yeah. Right? Did you did you observe that? I did observe that. And actually, I think going back to the approaching it as a kind of a business venture thing, I stayed away from theater as much as possible. Um, like if I didn't have to be at TTS, I was not there and I wasn't going to like every, every one of my cohort was like going to plays every weekend and everyone was doing, I was like, I love, I need to, I need to be hanging out with people outside of theater people because I will go nuts if I'm constantly around this because I don't, part of what makes me who I am is I love to be very well-rounded. So I can't only do one thing. I would be miserable if I had only consumed just the theater school environment. Um, So in a lot of ways, I think that uh, that also affected some of my relationships with BFAs just because I wasn't around as much. Uh, But also it was good for my, my mental health to to be away. It's interesting. The thing we crave, or at least I'll speak for myself, the thing that I was craving, which was this sort of, enmeshed support um not having good boundaries like i craved this sort of weird family vibe that i got a lot of times at the theater school is also probably not healthy for my own entrepreneur spirit to strike out on my own and do what i wanted to do for me not based on what my my cohort was doing or like it's just the things that we crave are also things that sometimes we just we need to stay away from and i i mean i guess so like one of my last questions for you would be because i'm really okay so my new dream is to help create a program for acting conservatories to start the launch earlier for 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 students mm-hmm. so that it's not a final like in the third quarter how do we become famous like i think that's a terrible idea so i think so i guess my question is what do you think it would take to really make the theater school a place that would have really launched you or maybe you feel like you got it launch you as more of a, a an entrepreneur like you have that inside of you but is there anything that they could have done to make a launch into the world of a professional artist better yeah um so the mfas we had workshop classes where we had a lot of like that was a lot of the business side i don't think the bfas got anything like that um, truly, I don't think until the theater school ha- operates as a business, I don't think it's going to be there because I don't necessarily think that TTS operates as a business. So, Ooh, say more about that. What do you mean? I don't think, I mean, they're not really concerned with ticket sales. They're not concerned with filling seats. They're not concerned with marketing because we still haven't been getting MFA alumni uh, newsletters this past year. So uh, we haven't gotten, have you all gotten an email about the new Dean? I, I only found out about it through social media. So like stuff like that, there are a lot of gaps where if I think people in the leadership positions need to have the business mindset in order to for it to trickle down. So it's going to it's going to have to come from leadership. Uh, That's fascinating. That's the last bastion. So this this thing that's happened in theater basically 
maybe since the 70s, has been this gradual moving away from this purist mentality about it has to only be theater and, and, and a reckoning and an understanding that people can't make their living, even if they're on Broadway doing theater. So it makes sense that the conservatory program would be sort of the last bastion of being late to getting this memo, mm -hmm. right? Because that's what they did do that. They did, they did mm, romanticize and kind of give you the, give us the idea that that's where the real acting yeah. was, right? And it's I, what I've observed, I think, certainly since we've been there is a gradual understanding that that's, that's not where it's at economically. No. And a lot of it is how you market yourself and, and the relationships you're building and, and understanding the industry. I, I So to answer your question, I think having someone like truly engulfed in the industry in the environment is a start. That way it's just kind of the information is spreading. And um, I don't think students come out really knowing what to expect from the industry. Right. No, they don't. Okay, TJ, we have to wrap up. So tell people where can they find you? You can find me at t.j.harris. <laughs> it's all periods in between um, my my name, TJ Harris, on Instagram. And then uh, instinctvisionfilms.com. Uh, so the word instinct and then the letter I, then uh, visionfilms.com. Uh, also on social media and providing a lot of updates on there. The website is up and running and there are going to be a lot of cool things coming up soon. Oh, I can't wait. You I are unstoppable. Wait. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Thank all. you. Oh, wait. Oh, uh, before we go, I have to, you're going to be the third person I'm asking, but I'm going to keep asking. If you ever talk to Phyllis, tell her we really love her to be on this show. I, I think text her. <laughs> okay. We, we, we haven't been I'm able to like, I'm If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.